So I was looking at our numbers, our listener numbers, and yeah. it's it's amazing the type of reach you have on the internet. Um, I I definitely knew that we would hit people in Kansas and Missouri and kind of the greater Chiefs Kingdom area, but I don't know if you noticed this, but we we're also in six countries around six. the world. Six countries. That's amazing. I didn't even know there were six countries. <laughs> yeah, and we're uh, you know Chiefs Kingdom is far and wide. You know there was Australia, there was the United Kingdom, there was Canada. Uh, but the one that that kind of stuck out was Poland. Hey, Poland! Yeah, yeah. So we're number three all time in Polish American football podcast downloads. No, number, number three, three all time. That's amazing. In the history of Poland, the great country of Poland, the land of the fields, as it's called on Wikipedia, it's always sunny in Chiefs Kingdom. Ranks number three. Number two is actually about soccer. It's the greatest game with Jamie Carragher. Who? Yeah, who? Exactly. Just say just say soccer player. That's all you have to say. <laughs> and then number one is our favorite NFL podcast of all time, the Around the NFL podcast. Well, that makes sense. It does make sense. Those guys are great. Everything about that pod is great. But but we check in at number three. And, and as we've realized on Twitter, this is all because of Chiefs number one super fan in Poland at Polish Chiefs fan. You know what's amazing about at Polish Chiefs fan? Just to everything. shout him out. Well, everything. But... What I love about at Polish Chiefs fan is that he put us on the map at number three all time in Poland single-handedly after two episodes. And what I love about this is we're also the number one Chiefs podcast in Poland because I don't see any Chiefs podcasts ahead of us, which means at Polish Chiefs fan is listening to one Chiefs podcast and it's always sunny in Chiefs kingdom. So shout out to you at Polish Chiefs fan for putting us on the map. Number three in Poland soon to be the world it's uh it's really amazing to think that this guy has really just made us into the global phenomenon that we are but you know uh pks as he's called on twitter shout out to you you're doing great stuff and uh you know tell your i wanted i told you on twitter tell your family and friends but he said that none of them like the chiefs so just tell everyone yeah tell everyone down at the local pub get them to listen to the podcast Plus, uh, we got a pretty huge shout out from uh, Mr. Chris Wessling from around the NFL, retweeted you with the, the big 100,000 followers there, uh, said we were gunning for a spot, and good old Chris, swell guy, gave you the retweet anyway. He's obviously not concerned for us coming for the number one spot in Poland, but I'll tell you what, at Polish Chiefs fan, how about you stop listening to around the NFL and you start listening to us double, and maybe we can pass them too. That'd be great. I love it. It's always sunny in Chiefs Kingdom is taking over the world one country at a time, and we have started with Poland. Boom! World domination. Hey everybody, welcome into episode three of It's Always Sunny in Chiefs Kingdom. I'm Austin. I'm Taylor. And we're here to talk to you about some exciting topics this week. We ditched the mailbag. Uh, shout out to everybody that sent us in questions for the first couple of weeks. You got us through the uh, first feeling out process, you know, how do we do a podcast? 
we do have, uh, we'll certainly go back to the mailbag, but we decided to talk about some different things this week. We are going to have another roast for you. The, uh, the recipient of said roast is going to be Derek Carr, so stay tuned for that at the end of the episode. First, we're going to get into week two, 2019. We've been going through the 2019 season week by week. It's topical. We're talking about Kansas City at Oakland this week. We're also going to talk a little bit about the proposed changes to the collective bargaining agreement. And then I think we might get into a little bit of XFL banter uh, before we get into our roast segment. So Taylor, you want to start with Chiefs at Oakland, week two, 2019. Chiefs at Oakland. It was uh, September 15th and it was a three o'clock start. You know, we went into that riding high off the, uh, off the old 40 point, outing in Jacksonville feeling pretty good about the offense we were a little banged up lost Tyreek Hill going into the game so he did not play here uh but fortunately uh our man Demarcus Robinson filled his shoes very very admirably and uh I think the first thing that stood out to me when I was reviewing this tape was just how much Pat Mahomes makes everyone around him better and yeah. that was no more clear than with Demarcus Robinson's six catches for count them 172 yards and two touchdowns. Yeah, he basically pulled a Sammy Watkins week one in week two. And I remember uh, that performance obviously sticking out because, you know, Demarcus has been a guy that really, I mean, he's probably not going to be on the team. I mean, I know he's not going to be on the team next year. Right. And while he certainly has come up with some big plays and some big moments, um, this was far and away the best game of his career. In fact, uh, number two, do you want to guess what uh, his second highest yardage total was in a game in his career? I can't imagine he's even had 100 yards in another game. You are correct. Okay. You're so. going to laugh. You're going to laugh, Taylor. So number two was week 17 of the 2018 season, also against Oakland. <laughs> He had one reception for 89 yards and Pat Mahomes' 50th touchdown of the season. And that was his longest, his his most yards ever in his career? It was, prior to week two, also against Oakland. We're seeing a little bit of a trend here. And in fact, his third highest yardage total of all time, also against Oakland, in week seven of the 2017 season with, wait for it, 69 yards. Nice. <laughs> so yeah so that was a little bit of an outlier performance from demarcus robinson but to your point we've seen that with patrick mahomes we talked about it i think we mentioned it on the podcast last week what he did with albert wilson um just his ability to in any given game just have a guy go off he did it with sammy he did it with demarcus robinson he did it with albert wilson in his first start ever uh i mean byron pringle byron pringle against the colts we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks yeah I mean just the ability of Patrick Mahomes to elevate the players around him is astonishing it's preposterous it is preposterous (laughs) and uh you know I I feel like maybe Oakland if they're smart in free agency should go out and sign D-Rob well then he can't burn him anymore I mean you know can't beat him join him can't beat him join him or sign him up obviously we were coming off a a demolishing of the Jags and what I loved about this was the Raiders started the season one and zero. they went to, uh, or excuse me, they didn't go to Denver, but they played Denver in week one. And of course we know as Kansas city fans, that Denver was also terrible. So when the Raiders beat the Broncos, no big deal to us, right? They're both pretty bad, uh, whatever. Um, but you know, there was a lot of buzz, um, 
amongst both of those fan bases coming into the season. And so, you know, Raiders fans were riding pretty high. And I can tell you they were riding extremely high after they opened the first quarter with that 10-0 start and had us in a 10-0 hole. And then the second quarter happened. Yeah, as we will see countless times with this team throughout the year, when it rains, it pours. And baby, that second quarter started, and it was amazing to watch. Um, when Mahomes is in a groove, and when the guys are getting open, and when you're playing a trash defense that Oakland was, <laughs> um, it really all can just come together in such beautiful fashion. And 28 points in a quarter was something that it was, it was a sight to behold. Um, some takeaways from this game, obviously, Demarcus Robinson's performance stands out against a, a terrible Oakland defense. And if, if anybody ever tries to tell you to worry about the Raiders, here's exhibit A of why we don't need to worry about the Raiders. That defense is still just terrible. Exhibit B, we'll get into <laughs> in a little bit more detail a little bit later on, but old Derek Carr did not have a good performance uh, against a defense that was kind of still finding its way. We talked about it a little bit uh, last week in week one. Struggled against Jacksonville. Struggled a little bit to start the game against Oakland. And then they realized that they're facing Derek Carr. And they kind of locked in a little bit. Well, they certainly struggled against Josh Jacobs. Josh Jacobs ran for 99 yards and kind of started that trend. It wasn't really that big of a concern to me at the time. It would become a much larger concern about midway through that first quarter of the season where the Chiefs would start to give up rushing yards in bunches. But um, yeah, in general, they were still, it was only their second game under Spags. They were all, all those new starters along the defense. They really weren't even close to gelling yet. And yet after a 10 point first quarter where the Raiders looked like they were going to go out there and play with the chiefs and, you know, the big bad division winners for the last couple of years. And then the Raiders just do what the Raiders did best and completely Choked the game away, had no answer for anything the Chiefs were doing. And really, after that second point, or the 28-point second quarter, the second half was scoreless. But it didn't it matter because the Chiefs had been had done everything they needed to do for a full game all in 15 minutes. You know, if you haven't seen it, um, there's a great YouTube breakdown of a couple of plays from this game, specifically by Brett Coleman. He does really good YouTube work. If you guys haven't checked him out, go to his page and just Google Patrick Mahomes, uh, some free promo for, for Brett. Um, he broke down a couple of plays in this game that ended up not counting in the stat sheet. And that's why I remember them, because I remember this great breakdown that he did. There was a play in this game where, so McCole Hardman got his first NFL touchdown um, for 42 yards, 42 yard deep bomb down the middle of that second touchdown on third and very long, I believe third and 20. I want to say yeah, third and 20. That's exactly right. Yeah. From the Raiders 42 and you know, third and 20, no problem. Let's just put it into the end zone. Um, that was actually after a 24 yard gain to Demarcus Robinson was called back on a holding penalty and uh, Mahomes later in the game threw another deep bomb off of his back foot. I mean, it's just a ridiculous throw down the middle to Hardman again streaking it would have gone for I think about a 60 yard touchdown it was also called back for a hold because uh our offensive line which had lost Eric Fisher I believe in this game correct was giving up an immediate pressure on uh, Patrick Mahomes and it was our old friend Vontez who was coming for Patrick Mahomes so understandably LaShawn McCoy held on that play and saved our quarterback's life very likely uh, so the play did end up getting called back, but it was just a reminder of how ridiculous our quarterback is. He's ridiculous. He's ridiculous. 
He is. And the highlights that he puts together on plays that don't count are better than most people's career highlights. He just stacks impressive throws. And uh, the loss of Eric Fisher there cannot be understated because yeah. what what ended up happening on that offensive line without him is we were have, having to put in Cam Irving in his place. Yeah. And uh, as everyone knows, Cam Irving is fine as a guy that can come in every now and then and play a couple positions. He's, he's a fine depth piece. You can't have him starting five, six, seven games in a row. At left tackle. Of At all left tackle. Yeah, I get, I mean, protecting the franchise. It's yeah. just, it, it was not a good situation. Um, I believe everyone has probably heard by now that in games that Eric Fisher played in this year, the Chiefs were undefeated. So, I think that is right. Yep. Yeah, because he came back after the Tennessee loss was his next game back. And obviously the Chiefs proceeded to win the Super Bowl. You know, uh, to your point, I mean, this is this was also the Chiefs' first game without Tyreek Hill. Obviously, they played most of the Jacksonville game without him, but we saw a big uptick in usage from Nicole Hardman, which was kind of what we were expecting coming into the year if, um, you know, if Tyreek had ended up starting the year on a suspension. Um, he did end up getting quite a bit more work in this game, um, including his first NFL touchdown had the uh, six targets, four receptions for 61 yards, as well as that touchdown that was called back. So we saw him get a little bit more work in the passing game, got a little bit of a a teaser of how explosive he could be. And it's going to be fun to see, it's going to be fun to see him make the leap, hopefully in year two. That's something that we talked about last week. And I'm sure we'll, we'll be talking about it pretty much every week because it seems like, you know, maybe only once or twice a game, but he came up big with explosive plays almost every game this year. Huge and highlight reel, absolute. It was the type of plays that demoralized an opponent because yeah, for sure, because they think about with Tyreek Hill and how fast he is and everything. But if you're not throwing to Tyreek Hill, they kind of feel like they catch a break and then you throw it to the jet. And I, I keep thinking about the Tennessee play. Obviously, they were, there were a lot of really, really nice plays. But the jump throw where he catches it in the middle of three defenders and then just they look like they're wearing cement shoes. The type of play that he pulled off there was just very indicative of the stuff he can pull off. And let's not forget, this was Pat's second game of the year, and he put up 443 and four touchdowns, which coming off of his, his Jacksonville game where he was incredible and threw the three touchdowns to Sammy and another 300 yards there, he was sitting in the NFL lead with seven touchdowns and 800 yards passing for two weeks <laughs> after his 50 and fit and 5,000. And we were just sitting there and I know if his ankle wasn't hurt, I'm sure the entire season for him would look different, but uh, you know, that kid stuffs the stat sheet like nobody I've ever seen. It's going to be fun now that we're reliving this. It's going to be fun to see the start of next year and see what this team can accomplish over a full season on offense if they're healthy, because this was the preview. This is what we thought was going to happen the whole year was, and even in this game where they only scored in one quarter, it had to be so, I mean, it had to feel like for the Raiders, the game was over after the second quarter. I mean, it just like, we didn't need, you know, we could we have scored more? Yeah, probably. They just didn't push us. They, they were beaten. They knew that they, they knew, I mean, it's almost like they recognized Derek Carr was thinking, well, I, I could go down and score a touchdown here, but like, why? 
what's the point, right? Like, what's the point? They're just going to score again. You know, like we might as well just mail it in, you know, check it down, pad that completion percentage a little bit, um, you know, pad our stats a little bit, but there's just, we have no chance to beat these guys. And I'm sure a lot of the chiefs opponents felt that at one point or another this year um, and are going to be feeling it for years to come. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. This team as many times as I've heard that defenses can demoralize teams and you can go up against a dominant defense and feel like you don't have a chance. That's what this chief's offense is. It's absolutely a, a mindset and they force the opponent to play differently. They force them to, you know, have desperate play calls and, and desperate. They, they don't allow the opponent to be comfortable because of how explosive they are. And I'm not sure. I know there have been some great offenses in the past, great show on turf and some stuff like that, but I, I don't remember the last time I saw an offense that overmatched defenses as consistently as this Chiefs team does. It's it's amazing. And it's only going to get it's only going to get better because our quarterback is 24 years old. He's got a great head coach. He has the same offensive staff in place for yet another year in a row. This will be the third year running that we return all of the significant offensive infrastructure uh, and coaches. And it's just going to be amazing to see what we uh what we see going forward you think kafka replaces the enemy eventually i think he does and i'm glad you brought that up we can we can talk mike kafka for a minute from what i've heard about mike kafka uh it seems like he's maybe on another level you know at some point here in the next three four five years there's going to be a point where we start to talk about andy's successor and who that's going to be because the way that this organization is run, you know, losing an offensive coordinator to a head coaching position, you know, basically every other year um, pretty much throughout the time he's been in Kansas city and probably when he was in Philly too, I'd have to go back and check, but um, it's become pretty apparent that the next coach of the chiefs, I think when Andy retires is going to be somebody that's on the coaching staff. Like I think it'll be his handpicked successor. And I think Mike Kafka, even though he's had to kind of wait another year or two because Eric Bieniemy, you know, had to wait also. Yeah, let's let's just call it like it is. You know, the whole race card thing. I mean, I, I don't want to get into that, but like, he should have a head coaching job by now. Um, but the the stuff that I've heard about Kafka has been, you know, kind of next level. Like, I I think he's really he supposedly is as a genius an offensive genius. It's going to be really interesting and fun to see him take over as offense coordinator when he gets that opportunity. And at some point, you know, whether it's Kafka or if it's the next man up after him, I think at some point we're going to be talking about the next head coach of the Kansas city chiefs. So something to keep an eye on for sure. You want to talk about the CBA for a minute? Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into it. I'm just going to kick out uh, the first couple of big points. Um, so to update you guys on the news, and this is not a news podcast. Uh, if you guys want breaking news, there's a website called twitter.com. I would recommend that you go there and that you follow Ian Rappaport, um, Adam Schefter, you know, all the good ones, all the hits. Um, per pro football talk, everybody's favorite breaking news website. Uh, there was a negotiation today between the uh, owners and the uh, CBA, the player reps, um, Obviously, there was uh, some news broken last week, and that's what we'll talk about, about kind of what was pitched to them. Nothing's been approved yet. It sounds like they could vote this week. The two big ones are obviously the 17-game season 
in the seven-game playoff. And so let's talk first about the 17-game season. What do you think about that? Well, if it could have been worked a little bit differently, I would have liked it a lot better. I agree. Um, There are some fun things they could have done with a double-by week, as in two-by weeks per team. Uh, They did not go that route, at least as far as anything that the public has seen. Um, I don't like that the 17th game check is uh, capped at $250,000. That means if a player makes more than $4.25 million on the season, they're getting shafted on that 17th game. And if it's a case like Pat Mahomes or a superstar quarterback or something, that $250,000 is, I mean, they, that's nothing. So there are some, some oddities with it. Um, as a football junkie, I know that it includes cutting out the preseason. And so that really does just mean more meaningful football. Um, that part of it I can get behind, but I do think the logistics of it could have been improved a lot better than what I've seen from the proposal. You know, I, I want to kind of pick up on that last little point that you made about, you know, one of the concessions that we've heard about being given up to the players in exchange for the 17th game of actual football that they're going to have to play is this reduced preseason. And frankly, the starters are already not playing those games anyway. Like if they go down to two preseason games, it's not like the starters are going to get any less work. They have to get some live reps um, but we've seen some teams move away from playing their starters in the preseason completely. Sean McVay um, famously has done that with the Rams the last couple of years to varying degrees of success. Worked out great two seasons ago when they were in the Super Bowl and not so much this last year. Um, but I mean, is that really have anything to do with the preseason? Probably not. What, what upsets me about it is, and what would really upset me if I were a player, obviously I'm just a fan. And as a fan, the more football, the better. But uh, it feels like the the starters, I mean, they're playing an extra game. They probably weren't going to play in those preseason games anyway. So you're basically adding an extra game onto the schedule. You're not giving them an extra bye week. And then talking about the seven-team playoff with one bye week, that gets to be real gnarly. It does. It's, um, you know, it's a different look to the NFL playoffs. I wonder how reseeding would work. Um, I was thinking about that the other day because they usually did, you know, after the first round, the best remaining team goes to the two and the worst remaining team goes to the one. I'm guessing with the one bye week, they would just slot it to where the the one gets to play. You know, they wouldn't receive. Um, there's also the extra two extra playoff teams, which makes a playoff spot in the NFL less rare. Mm-hmm. Um that doesn't really do very much for me. I kind of, I feel like the rarity level of 12 out of 32 felt better than 14 does. Um, kind of a gut feeling might just be a little, a uh, little boomer in me that doesn't like the change there. But, <laughs> but in general, I do think that adding teams isn't really going to make the NFL playoffs a whole lot more compelling. What I, what I don't like about it. I agree with that. And, and, you know, I think, um, I think the NFL really the playoff format is perfect as it is. I mean, it, it's a hard balance to strike. We've seen the uh, the NBA and MLB and probably hockey. I'm I'm sorry guys, yeah. I don't watch hockey. Neither um, of us are hockey. All, We're in Kansas City. Come on. Yeah, I know, but we have a lot of Blues fans and things. People from St. Louis that are part of Chiefs Kingdom now. I've ragged on St. Louis my whole life, but welcome in. You're a part of the family now. Um, 
What I don't like, I mean, we've seen those leagues make some tweaks. Obviously, baseball in the 90s, adding the wild card. The NBA has gotten to the point where, you know, more than half the teams make the playoffs, which is ridiculous. ridiculous. Every series is seven games, which is ridiculous. Um, I mean, it, it's great because it means that the, the best teams almost always win in the playoffs, but it takes two and a half months. And it, it, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Um, what really concerns me about the seven game playoff format is there's a couple of things. So one of the defenses of it that I've heard is that it means week 17, or I guess week 18 is probably what it would end up being. The last, last week of the season is now suddenly more meaningful because you've got only one bye. So, you know, you've got teams playing for the bye. Well, that that's counterintuitive to me. I don't think that's true because you've taken the total number of buys from four to two. So there's, there's theoretically, since there's fewer spots to play for, I think you're going to end up with less teams having something to play for in the last week of the season. Um, just this year, uh, you had a weird situation in the NFC where three teams finished 13 and three. Um, that was plenty of drama on its own. There, there was only, there were two buys available and there were three teams playing for two buys, but even, uh, in the AFC, on the other hand, you had the Ravens. The Ravens clinched. They were 14-2. and two. They were two games better than both the Chiefs and the Patriots. And so I, you wouldn't have created any drama there. And the Chiefs and the Patriots then wouldn't really have had anything to play for because they wouldn't have had any chance at the one bye, right? Yeah, I think it's important that the difference between having a buy and not having a buy is so much monumentally more important oh, it's huge. than the seating within, you know, if you're talking about the difference between two and three or even really two and five or something like that, that's not nearly as big as getting a free win in the first round. And you're right. At the end of the day, what these teams are shooting for much more than positioning is that buy, if they can get it. And it, eliminating one of those just makes it kind of feel like the drama at the end of the year, like you were saying, is just not going to be, it's not going to have as much punch. But it's not just the drama because my second point that I wanted to make about that is the difference between the one and the two seed in any given year can just be as simple as what teams are on your schedule and or what your injury situation was like. So like this year, for example, the Chiefs beat out the Patriots for the number two seed only because the Miami Dolphins pulled off a miracle upset in the last week of the season. And we had the head-to-head tiebreaker. And despite the fact that we had a lot of injuries and the Patriots played literally the easiest schedule in like the last 10 years in the NFL, we finished with the same record. So like we were very lucky even even given everything that happened, we were very lucky to get the two seed and a buy. You know, in any given year, um, with only a 16 or even a 17 game season, the way that football works, it is inherently a game of small sample sizes. And every year you're going to have games that break one way or the other because the ball bounced a certain way. You're going to have a game or two on the schedule where, you know, you get a win where you shouldn't have had a win or you get a loss where you shouldn't have had a loss because there's a weird penalty or there's a fluke play or there's a, a, an untimely injury, you know, something like that. And really, when you're talking about such a massive advantage, like you're talking about with the bye week, 
it's it's frankly it's unfair to only have one per conference right like it just doesn't make any sense to me because the team that's going to get that it's going to be a good team every year is going to get the one seed like you're not going to have a bad team that gets the one seed but the difference between the one seed and the two seed almost every year is going to be pretty thin and one of those teams is going to suddenly be head and shoulders above the other team when the difference on the field might not be that great. And in fact, a lot of years, I think you're probably going to end up with the better team, you know, maybe ends up with the two seed uh, just because of injuries or scheduling luck or whatever it is. And so I, I don't know, that part of it is, is really difficult for me to accept. It sounds like it might be inevitable, but I hate yeah. it. Yeah. It's um, it's tough to see one team with the advantage as great as the bye week It's, it's a lot more palatable when it's a third of the, playoff teams yeah agreed the bye week now we're talking about two out of 14 teams we go from a third to a seventh of the of the playoff teams get that huge huge advantage with the bye and i i agree with you completely i don't know if you could say that those teams deserve that head and shoulders advantage when really at the end of the day the margins are razor thin and i i think officially what you and i are saying is that we are not in favor of the 17 playoff and we are not really in favor of the 17th game either correct hard pass super pass uber pass <laughs> yeah that's right yeah um there are a lot of other quirks to the cba i as i was going through uh something that stood out to me was the increase of active players on the roster from 53 to 55 uh, oh, I, know, I know you and I are both fans of larger roster sizes of less uh, restriction on um, just a lot of the mechanics of, of construction of the roster and increasing the practice squad by two and increasing the active roster by two is a great first step in that direction. So I think, uh, I think I'm on board there for sure. Yeah, I think um, I didn't see whether that would include an increase in the number of players you could have active on game day that you could dress on game day. It's a, very stupid to me that you can't dress and have all your players active how we arrived at a 52-man roster with 46 active players on game day to begin with is a total mystery to me that's like one of those things that probably is knowable but like i mean it's like uh it's like the guy who decided he was going to drink cow milk for the first time you know it's kind of just like why why did you why did you do this like it, it just it is it worked out it's fine but but why why if the if the sixth defensive lineman or whatever that we're definitely not going to play a single snap anyway uh if we would rather deactivate him and say chris jones might play that game like don't you think strategically don't you think if we need him for a down or something it just Yes. Yes. We, yes. I don't get the, I don't get the declaring a guy out. I especially don't get it declaring it anytime before the last possible second you have to declare it. Um, there are a lot of things that these coaches do with their rosters that I, I don't know if they're smarter than me or if they just haven't really considered that they don't have to do these things. Yes. And I would love to, if we ever got a chance to just sit down with an NFL head coach, Andy or, or Belichick or somebody and like had the opportunity to shoot him with some kind of truth serum. So they had to answer our questions truthfully. I would love to ask this. Um, you mentioned Chris Jones. Like I remember talking before the Titans playoff game, you know, when it wasn't clear if he was going to play or not, you should for sure make him active, you know, because they've game planned as if he's going to play. And if he's standing on the sideline active with his uniform on, 
he could sub in at any time, right? Like you, you have to be aware of the possibility that he can come into the game. And even if you just put him in like one or two snaps early on as a decoy, you have to be aware that he is active and that he could play, you know, like, and he ended up playing in that game and playing pretty well in that game in limited snaps. But like, why would you, like you said, why would you, you know, choose to activate a guy that isn't going to play at all? And, and frankly, if he did go onto the field in a sub package, wouldn't concern the Titans at all. Why would you, why would you make that guy active over, uh, you know, even a decoy Chris Jones? It doesn't make any sense. Football is information warfare. It is, it is all about, yes. it, it is as much X's and O's as it is Jimmy's and the Joe's. And the way that they can, can put ideas into the other coach's head, which Andy is as good at as anybody there has yes. ever. Yes. And, and make them think about certain things and make them game plan for things that aren't going to happen. And don't make, don't let them know things that are going to happen. They're just, you have to treat it like, like you're a spy. And I don't get this whole, I like, like you were just saying, I don't get the idea that they have to declare these guys. And it's just, none of it really has ever made sense to me. And I'm not quite sure it ever will. So to transition here, uh, to a league where the inactives are announced on a website only, like 60 minutes before the game start. Uh, we've been uh, we've been enjoying our XFL lately. We have. And we've been enjoying our XFL fantasy league lately. And I remember sending you a message on Sunday to update my roster if and when the inactives were declared. Uh, I did not see them until about I don't know. It was probably 20 minutes before kickoff. Um, but let's talk a little bit about XFL. You and I have uh, mentioned the possibility that we would discuss it on the show the last couple of weeks, and we ended up not really touching on it because of time. But something that we've both uh, watched quite a bit of and really enjoyed. What have you uh, What have you been liking about it? Uh, the transparency is probably the thing that, as a football junkie, that I have really latched onto. Yes. Um, I think the hot mics all throughout between the refs and the offensive coordinators and the, and the coaches and the sideline interviews during the game. Um, I think their presentation, they got it hundred percent right. And the quality of the football, while not NFL caliber by any stretch of the imagination is certainly college caliber, certainly watchable football with some highlight reel plays, some guys that are really busting their tails. Um, I just think in general, I don't know how you could, as a football fan, tune into the XFL and not enjoy the experience. I agree. And I think, um, I mean, I know some of the qualms that people have are about the quality and certainly the, and we saw this a little bit with the AAF too, you know, it it typically is going to be offensive line play and quarterback play are kind of the two things that immediately jump out as, uh, as being, you know, a big skill gap from the, NFL to the XFL right but what's been nice about it is for the most part there have been some blowouts but you know for the most part the games have been pretty competitive there definitely are a couple of teams that are head and shoulders above the rest and a couple of teams that are are definitely not very competitive what's your favorite rule change so I really like the extra points. <laughs> that was, um, yep, that was I, what I thought you were going to say. So number one, um, the idea of being able to go for a one, two, or three-point play is fascinating to me. Number two, the first couple of weeks have been hilarious just watching teams try to run, you know, conversion plays on every touchdown. Pop quiz, which conversion play has the highest conversion percentage, a one-point, two-point, or three-point play? 
I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to guess three just because you're asking. Ding, 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 ding. Nice. It is strategically advantageous to always go for three. Just like in the NFL, it would be strategically advantageous to always go for two. The math is in your favor. Um, I think the expected points for a three-point play was somewhere in the neighborhood of, uh, it was over a point. It was maybe close to a point and a half. As of yesterday, it was one point exactly. One point exactly. Perfect. But their expected points on a two-point play drops down to 0.64. And down on a one-point play drops all the way down to 0.296. So, and part of that is the success rate. You've got one-point plays are eight out of 27 for a 30% success rate. Two-point plays are nine out of 28 for a slightly higher 32% success rate. And three-point plays out of, so they've attempted 27 and 28 ones and twos. They've only attempted six three-point plays. Uh, and they're two two for six, so 33% there. Uh, To be able to come away with anywhere between six and nine points, nice, on a touchdown Uh is... uh, it, it makes those the scoring jumps extremely um, unfamiliar to NFL players yes. and fans. And you know, looking at a at a score, and you in the NFL, we're so used to being able to game plan how you need to score. Yes, with touchdowns and field goals, we can see okay, stop, score, stop. We've got it. We've got it figured out. The XFL, you kind of look at it and you're like, okay, we're down nine, but I guess that's just a touchdown and a three. But if we miss that three, we could still kick a field goal and tie. It's very, right. it's very wacky, which as someone who's thought a lot about football in my life, um, I love kind of stretching my brain a little bit there and trying to figure out what's going on on the field. Yeah. And I just like, I mean, I, what I really appreciate about the XFL and shout out to whoever, whatever math whiz was behind some of the rule changes, because it feels like they had an idea in their heads of the kind of football that they wanted to promote and they changed the rules to promote that. So uh, one of the other rule changes is uh, punts. If they go out of bounds or if they're into the end zone, it's a touchback. And I believe the touchback is to the 35 on a punt. Is that correct? Uh, it is a, it depends on what type of touchback. Okay. So there is a on the fly touchback, which is called a major touchback. And that goes to the 35. If it rolls and the team allows it to roll into the end zone, that's actually the team that allows it to roll in is punished more. And it's only a minor touchback and they get it at the, I want to say the 30. It's been a little bit since I've looked that rule up, but uh, there are, they, they discourage touchbacks as much as they can. So they discourage punting they uh, force you to go for conversions in the red zone. You are not allowed to kick an extra point. You have to run a football play. Um, and and the, the rules, just the nature of the game is more skewed towards passing, which is something that regrettably has come up in our XFL Fantasy League, which yes. you have been running for us in a spreadsheet, a Google manually, document. like a like a savage, uh, like a savage, like an absolute monster. For those of you who want the backstory, I I did tweet about this when it happened, but sure. you know it was a Friday afternoon, the Friday before the XFL kicked off, and Taylor wanted to do an XFL Fantasy League, so we got together six other like-minded savages <laughs> and uh, logged onto the only website that does XFL Fantasy, and it was such garbage that Taylor decided to create his own draft in a Google document. Um, So that's what we've been playing our fantasy uh, XFL out of, and he's been updating the scores manually. And I bring this up because my team is two and one. I've got some amazing skill players. A lot of guys you guys would recognize Lance Dunbar, 
former Cowboy. Matt Jones, former Redskin. Um, I've got Kenneth Farrow, former Seahawk. I've got Trey McBride, who I don't know where he came from, but he <laughs> just dropped uh, 150 and two on Sunday. But unfortunately, my quarterback is one Matt McGloin, who uh, has not been very good. And there's only eight teams in the XFL, and there's eight teams in our XFL Fantasy League, which means there are not a lot of quarterbacks available. So that's been a little bit of a sticking point for me. Um, I can't say that it's turned me off to the whole experience because, I mean, I love fantasy and I love the XFL and I love football. So I'm, I'm definitely tuning in. I watched all the games this past weekend. It's it's been uh, It's been a wild ride. It's something that, especially coming so quickly off the heels of the Alliance of American Football, the AAF that we read a little bit earlier, which was a complete disaster in every sense of the word. It was a disaster technologically where they thought that they had this cool app that could track all the players and it was a, it, it didn't work at all. It was a disaster financially. They had to shut the season down before it even got halfway over. It was a disaster on the football field. The, the quality of play was extremely poor, much poorer than the XFL in my opinion. And everyone kind of took the XFL as a joke after that. And they, you know, they tried it once 20 years ago, they had the one season of it and then never came back. And I think people weren't really prepared for it to be a success this time around. But I think according to the TV ratings and the kind of, um, I guess you could call them reviews. I don't really know what you call people just saying how good the sport is, but, sure. uh, but they've, it's gotten some positive vibes. And I think that if they keep it up, with Vince McMahon's pocketbooks, which are a lot deeper this time than they were last time around and a lot more invested in the league. Uh, he's got a chance to really get a niche here in the couple weeks after the Super Bowl, where everyone's still kind of, fi- you know, figuring out their life without football a little bit. And uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's going to at least stick around for a couple years. I hope it has some staying power. And I do, I do like the product. I think it's a good product. Um, I, uh, I just, I've really enjoyed it. Um, we're thinking about maybe going, taking in a battle Hawks game, maybe in, in a couple of weeks, maybe towards yeah. the end of the season. So it'll be fun. I, I would love to see that, uh, live, especially in St. Louis. It sounds like they've had an amazing crowd. Um, which I mean, those people are all chiefs fans now. Um, some of them probably listen to the podcast and we're very excited to have them as a part of the kingdom. Uh, but they they really have showed out for their their battle hawks. And by the way, while we're on the subject of the battle hawks, can we talk about how every social media post that they do is basically a riff <laughs> off of the Birds of War from the getting ah! wrestles for the troops? Stomp, clap, stomp, stomp, clap. That's pretty much their entire social media presence. I think their social media guy definitely is a big fan of that episode, as we are too. We're going to have to get into some sunny rankings in the yeah. future. A lot of people have been asking us about that. Um, and just so you guys know, I mean, if we were going to rank episodes, I think our unanimous choice for number one sunny episode of all time is the gang wrestles for the troops. It's true. It's perfect from start to finish. Uh, I've had a lot of time over the years to think about my favorite Sunny episode. I've wavered once or twice, but I've always come back home to Wrestles for the Troops. I think that it represents the show in a way that um, I think the writers fully intend. And I just, I think that uh, if you're going to sit down and watch one episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia to figure out what the show is about, as I'm sure some of our listeners are possibly considering, having not watch the show. I know many of them have, but uh, Wrestles for the Troops is a great place to start. It certainly is. Well, Taylor, that brings us to our final segment, I believe, of this week's episode, 
which is the roast. The roast is my favorite part of everything that we do. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we, ha we asked the people who they wanted us to take down this week, and we got an overwhelming response that the quarterback of the Las Vegas Raiders would be the Oof, look at you nailing that on your first try. <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, it's been – as we talked about last episode, I love Las Vegas. It's a, it's a near and dear place to my heart, and the moment that the Raiders decided to move there – I've been a little bit, I don't want to say torn because I will hate the Raiders forever, but I wish they wouldn't have picked my favorite non-Kansas City city in the country to go there. Yeah, uh, But I've sure. kept it on my mind quite a bit. I think more than probably your average non-Raiders fan has. So I can't imagine calling them the Oakland Raiders from this point accidentally. Um, but, you know, I guess never say never. Well, let's take a trip back in time to the year 2016 when the Las Vegas Raiders were still the Oakland Raiders. Simpler times. Their quarterback was a man named Derek Carr. And you will hear the legend of Derek Carr about that 2016 season, that glorious season that put Derek Carr on the map as an elite quarterback in the NFL. That It was MVP caliber. You're going to hear that phrase from Raiders fans from now until the end of time. Derek Carr's MVP caliber 2016. And that's where I would like to start, Taylor, because – Derek Carr's 2016 season, much like John Elway's entire career, is a product of narratives and myths We've that heard simply this are just not true. If you've listened to episode one, you've heard this with respect to John Elway's entire career, as I just alluded to. That's also available as a standalone episode. So let me just go ahead and give that a plug. It's excellent. Um, since we've done that episode, I've come up with so much more good John Elway material. So we're going to roast him again at some point. <laughs> Because his whole career deserves to be roasted. And, and really, just to give everyone kind of a peek into our philosophy a little bit, narratives in general are about as frustrating for people that are as grounded in reality as Austin and I, that if we ever find that someone's talking about jinxing or moxie or comeback or, or any of the type of just complete nonsense that people like to associate with sports teams and figures uh we will shout you out we will roast you we will make sure that everyone understands that you are not intelligent yes and so Derek Carr 2016 MVP caliber that's what you're going to hear about Derek Carr's 2016 and I want to start just by diving into the numbers on a surface level the the figures the the numbers the figures Yes, I have reviewed them myself, and I have a conclusion to present. So, first off, the Raiders finished 12-4 and four that year. They lost the division title to the Chiefs on a tiebreaker. Derek Carr himself was 12-3. and three. He got injured at the end of the season, and that's going to be part of it. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, I just want to start with his numbers, and you tell me, Taylor, if you think that this is worthy of being in the MVP conversation. Sure. He was 15th in completion percentage. So how many quarterbacks are there in the league? Uh, 30, 32, 32. So he's 15th. So, you know, that doesn't seem that good to me. Do they give um, the MVP out to the entire top half of the league? They don't. No, it's not like the NBA playoffs where the top half of quarterbacks win the MVP award. It's they just give it to the best one? Yeah, it's supposed to be like the new seeding where only the very best team gets it. Okay, so... so. 15th, not great. 
No, it's not great. So yards per attempt, 19th. So that's actually bad. That's actually like that wouldn't even make the playoffs in the NBA. Um, not yet. Not good at all. 10th in touchdown percentage. Um, I'm throwing out percentage stats here. Uh, we talked about this a little bit in the Elway roast. Something that's very important to Taylor and I are something called rate stats. We like rate stats and not counting stats. The difference between a counting stat and a rate stat is as follows. A counting stat is a number. So like the number of touchdowns you throw. A rate stat is a percentage. So it's like the number of times you throw a touchdown in a certain number of pass attempts. And part of the reason we roasted John Elway so hard last week is because, you know, people will say John Elway, he retired with the second most touchdown passes of all time. Well, yeah, that's because he started the second most games of all time and he played in a more passer friendly era than the people that came before him. And by the way, he finished with 120 fewer touchdowns than Dan Marino. Okay. Who played at the same time. I don't want to get back into roasting Elway, but the rate stat, on the other hand, that's not going to matter how many attempts we're talking about here. If I say somebody threw for 50 touchdowns, that seems like a lot, but you don't know if that was in 100 pass attempts or 1,000 pass attempts, and that makes a big difference. Um, so Derek Carr finished 10th in touchdown percentage. That's not bad. He finished 4th in interception percentage, which is actually quite good. So he was in the top four in to fewest, yeah, there the you go. fewest the lowest percentage of uh, pass attempts that ended in interception. He was the fourth lowest. He finished first in sack percentage, which is the best in the NFL. That means he was sacked at the lowest rate in the NFL in 2016. Sacks are a little bit of a quarterback stat. Um, so there's been some research done on this. Quarterbacks that hold on to the ball longer take sacks at a higher rate. That just makes sense. Obviously, the offensive line is going to come into play there a little bit, and I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, first in sack percentage, so he was a lead at something. He was he was very good at not getting sacked. He finished eighth in quarterback rating, which we talked about last week, or I guess in episode one. Quarterback rating, not a great stat, but when you're comparing the quarterback ratings of everybody playing the same season, pretty good. Not yeah. bad. Not a yeah. bad stat, you know. Um, so just among quarterbacks that played in 2016, there were seven guys with a better pass rating than him. And then QBR, which is a proprietary stat by ESPN, sort of a, uh, a an updated take on quarterback rating, 17th, which is mm. below average. Now, Taylor, he did finish second in two very important categories, which I know you're going to dive into in just a minute. And those are fourth quarter comebacks and game winning drives. Yes. So. As we know, the MVP should always be determined by the number of times you lead your team from behind and or have a game-winning drive, <laughs> which is why the MVP in 2016 was not Derek Carr. It was actually Matthew Stafford who led in both of those categories. Yeah, Matthew Stafford's famous 2016 MVP year that doesn't actually exist because that stat is actually completely meaningless. Um, one thing about comebacks that you, people have to understand, which they don't seem to understand as much, is that you have to be down to come back yeah you have to be behind and, and the number of comeback attempts by quarterbacks since Derek Carr took over so his whole his whole thing is that he leads the league since his first day of at comeback wins he is first with uh depending on your definition of a comeback I called it down going into the fourth quarter and winning he has 11 wins in the NFL since oh, his start but Taylor that seems like a lot 
It does seem like a lot. He's tied with Drew Brees for the most comeback wins since 2014. Well, Drew Brees is amazing, so that must mean that Derek Carr is amazing. Yes, Derek Carr and Drew Brees are exactly identical, and Aaron Rodgers is right behind them with 10. So you're thinking to yourself, okay, Derek Carr coming back a lot, that means he's really good. However, as we do, when you dive into the numbers a little bit deeper and you look at the number of games that the Oakland Raiders, in the future the Las Vegas Raiders, uh, have entered in entered the fourth quarter down since Derek Carr took over. So so get this. Let me let me throw some numbers out. Yes. Uh, Aaron Rodgers, on me. Aaron Rodgers third place. He has ten wins in thirty nine attempts. Okay. So, so that's thirty nine times he has been down entering the fourth quarter. Yes. And ten times he has come back to win. That is correct. Gotcha. So he wins about a quarter of the time that his team is down, but he's had thirty nine attempts. So above Rodgers in number of attempts, you have Eli Manning at 41, you have Andy Dalton at 42, you have the aforementioned Matt Stafford also at 42, you have Blake Bortles at 43. You'll notice something about those quarterbacks, Eli Manning, Andy Dalton, Blake Bortles, not exactly great quarterbacks. They're down. No, they're not very good. They're, they're, the number of times that they're going into the fourth quarter down is very, very high. Uh, you do have Drew Brees in there. They The Saints were uh, kind of up and down there on defense for a while. He's at 43. You have Matt Ryan at 44. You have our old friend Philip Rivers at 46. So that is the top players that are down going into the fourth quarter, except we're missing one. Derek Carr is all the way up at the top at 54 games trailing going into the fourth quarter. What? That is a whole eight games higher than second place Philip Rivers and an astronomical number of attempts. The the amount of times that Derek Carr's Raiders have been sucking so bad throughout the game that the fourth quarter they're down, <laughs> it, it can't be understated. So the guy's got 11 wins, but he had 54 attempts. So he converts that at about a 20.3% clip. 20% of the time, he's turning a fourth quarter deficit into a fourth quarter lead. Now, of all the quarterbacks that have made starts since 2014, Derek Carr, it, you would think that he would be high in the percentage because he's known as his comeback guy, right? Well, he's clutch. He's clutch. That is a known fact known by Oakland Raiders fans far and wide. Sure. Uh, but what they don't tell you is that there have been uh, – that he ranks 28th in the league in comeback percentage. Oh, Ooh, that doesn't seem very good at all. 28th is not good at all. In fact, it's extremely bad. Uh, so all this is to say that, look, I get it, you guys. I, I get that Derek Carr has made these comeback. And especially, he did a lot of this damage in 2016. I have a great Twitter feed, which I will plug right now, uh, where I go through and I break down game by game of his, I believe it was eight 2016 comeback victories. Oh, yeah. And they're all complete trash. They are all his defense returning a fumble late or, or the other team shanking a game-winning field goal. They're, they're all absolutely angels in the outfield type of stuff that, <laughs> that he gets credit for these comebacks. And really, he didn't do anything. So this year, he had one comeback in eight attempts. Would you like to guess which starting quarterback in the NFL he made that comeback against? Uh, I would, it was, I'm just going to guess. I, I honestly have no idea. I'm going to guess Marcus Mariota. Cause he's also a loser. <laughs> That's a great guess. And you would think that if anyone was going to be on the other end of one of these burns, it's going to be Marcus Mariota. Uh, in fact, it's a former chief. Oh, 
Oh, can you think of any former Chiefs that were starting quarterbacks in the NFL? Uh, I can. I can. It wasn't Matt Castle. Hold no. on, hold on, hold on. It was not. Oh, oh. Oh, was this game played in another country, perhaps? It was played in another country. It sounds like you're maybe on the right track here. Uh, is this team a uh, animal or a vegetable? <laughs> this team is an animal, and there is often a lot of switching around, but usually they are a top. Uh, okay, so this animal is a top, and it has to be Chase Daniels' Chicago Bears, correct? Ding, 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 ding. That's correct. So Derek Carr's one comeback win of the 2019 season oh my gosh. was against a backup quarterback. Ugh. I, and, and it just, you know. What a heroic comeback it was, though. That's right. Exactly right. It really got those Raiders on the right track. And you can tell, by the way, it got them on the right track because they finished 7-9 and nine on the year. So he really, uh, he's got the juice. He's got the moxie. He's, he's able to lead that team. Um, I, for one, as a Chiefs fan, cannot wait. I, I, I want Derek Carr to start every game until he's 90 for the Raiders because he's made things so easy on us. And I just, I can't really deal with him going to another place. I really want him to stay in Las Vegas, but I'm not quite sure if, uh, if the cards are right for that. You know, it'll be fun to find out. I want to circle back to that 2016 season with all the comeback wins, you know, Please. because part of what we do when we're roasting people and when we're busting these myths, it, we, we try to, you know, sort of psychologize about why these myths come to be. And I think you did a great job identifying the comeback wins. That's definitely a big part of it. Um, it also, I think, has to do with the fact that Oakland was complete garbage for 15 years prior to them magically winning 12 games that year. So, you know, they're, they're in the playoff conversation. And then I think the other issue is that Derek Carr got hurt and their Raiders backups were a combination of Matt McGloin and Connor cook, neither of whom is currently starting in the XFL, (laughs) let alone in the NFL. So, you know, just because a starting quarterback gets hurt and his backup is really bad, that doesn't make him more valuable. His value is the same. It's just that the value of his replacement was so bad that it made Derek Carr look way better than he actually was. And side note, if you gave Andy Reid uh, what Derek Carr had in 2016, which, by the way, is four Pro Bowl starters on offense, uh, Amari Cooper, Donald Penn, Kalechi Assimile, and Rodney Hudson, uh, that's three Pro Bowlers and one All-Pro on the offensive line, by the way, if you gave Andy Reed an all pro offensive line and at least one pro bowl wide receiver and a dude that was coaching high school football three months prior to that, <laughs> Matt Moore, <laughs> uh, he would turn it into a guy that can, you know, beat a playoff team like the Minnesota Vikings, not a guy that uh, crapped the bed against the Denver Broncos and then lost to a horrid Houston Texans team horrid. in the 2016 playoffs. Well, it certainly says a lot about their talent evaluation at quarterback when Derek Carr can leave the team and the backups can be so bad that it makes the team pine for Derek Carr. And they consider <laughs> that to mean that Derek Carr is valuable when really what it means is that the leadership in Oakland at the time had no idea what a good quarterback looked like. That is true. And they still don't because their quarterback is Derek Carr. Do you think he'll stay there? You know, I uh, there actually were some comments made by Mike Mayock today. He was um, he was praiseworthy of Derek Carr, but you know, he said 
what he said was quarterback is like any other position in that, you know, you're always trying to get better and you're always trying to create competition. You think he'd say that if Carr was his guy? Yeah, exactly. You're not going to hear Andy Reid say that. Uh, <laughs> well, we're going to take a look at Matt Moore next year. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's let's stay on the topic of Derek Carr for a minute. Uh, I've got some quick hitters here. Number one, I have Derek Carr's uh, career against playoff teams. Mm. His record is four and thirty-one. That's Ooh. that's it. That's the tweet. Derek Carr against the Chiefs. Let's talk about that. You said you hoped he could play against the Chiefs forever, and you yeah. were right. Because here is numbers against the Kansas City Chiefs. Derek Carr, captain eyeliner himself, two and ten. He has a two and ten record. Uh, you may recall that both of those wins were in Oakland. They were by a combined score of, I think, three points. I think it was a three, a one-point game, and a two-point game, maybe. Um, and they were both in Oakland, and they were both on Thursday night, I believe. And they were both completely garbage. Both West Coast uh, road trips where the Chiefs had to travel to Oakland on a three-day week, play the, uh, play the Raiders in their home stadium, and they barely lost those games by, I think, a combined total of – I actually think it was a one-point – loss and a three-point loss i think it was a 24 21 and then that ridiculous one where there was like four untimed plays in the game and we lost by one point anyway and i'll never forgive latavius murray for the oh just ridiculous uh two and ten record a 59.5 completion percentage a 227.8 yards per game average so 227 yards 59 percent completion percentage Touchdown to interception ratio, 15 to 13. Touchdowns to INTs, not very good. Got a 74.6 quarterback rating, 30, 32 sacks in 12 games, and a 5.71 YPA, so 5.71 yards per attempt. I have a, an adjective to describe this line, Taylor. I call this Elway-esque. Ooh, that's <laughs> what you call a double barrel burn. Boom, 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 boom. Got him. Uh, so... I want to talk briefly about Derek Carr's pace stats. We okay. talked about this with the uh, the counting stats, the narratives, the myth busting. Something that people love to say about all of these people that we've roasted so far, which is just two people, Derek Carr and John Elway, is uh, you know they they accomplished X after Y number of years. So you know in John Elway's case, well he had the second most touchdowns. You know when he retired, well yeah that's because he he had the second most quarterback starts of all time. And he played in a slightly passer-friendly era. He threw the ball a lot. Uh, people like to say this about Derek Carr too. They they like to say, well, Derek Carr, you know, he ranked you. He had this many touchdown passes after three seasons, and that's almost an NFL record. Well, yeah, okay. So a couple issues with that. Number one, Derek Carr plays in a very pass-friendly era, and number two, Derek Carr started as a rookie and hasn't had any major injuries, so he's made a ton of starts. So when you're talking about uh, after a certain number of years in the NFL. Of course, he's going to rank highly in counting stats, things like touchdown passes. So he currently ranks after three seasons in the NFL. He, is, he has the fourth most touchdowns of all time through three seasons with 81. He's behind Marino, Andrew Luck, happy retirement to him, happy trails, and Peyton Manning. And he's just ahead of which great quarterback? Care to guess? Oh, I'm going to go with um, Trent Green. Trent Green's not a terrible guess. I'll give you some clues. How about that? Uh, this quarterback was also drafted in the second round, just like Derek Carr. He also started as a rookie, just like Derek Carr. 
He also has not had any major injuries, or at least didn't have any major injuries in his first three seasons. Same era. Same era, and he is probably on the outs from his organization this year. Uh, he has red hair. The red rifle Andy Dalton himself. You got it. Andy Dalton. So, yes, Derek Carr is fourth all-time in touchdown passes through three seasons, right ahead of Andy Dalton. In seventh, by the way, with only five fewer touchdown passes in his first three seasons, is Patrick Mahomes, <laughs> who played 16 fewer games than Derek Carr. So when some Raiders fan tries to tell you, well, Derek Carr has more touchdown passes through his first three seasons than Patrick Mahomes, that is technically true. But he's only five ahead, and he played 16 more games. Good so, Lord. Uh, by the way, uh, yards, he's ninth all-time in yards through nine seasons behind uh, the luminaries that we talked about above, Andy Dalton, Marino, Luck, Peyton. Those are all actually pretty good quarterbacks, except for Andy Dalton. He's also behind Jameis, Winston, Cam Newton, Ryan Tannehill, and Blake Bortles. So don't don't give me this nonsense about him ranking highly after three seasons in the NFL. Nobody cares. If you look at a rate stat like quarterback rating uh, and just look at the first three seasons in the NFL, he's actually 19th there despite playing in a passer-friendly era. And that's behind people like Marcus Mariota, uh, Jared Goff, Dak Prescott, Nick Foles, Jeff Garcia, Carson Palmer, some guys that, uh, you know, aren't necessarily all pros, but uh, certainly were performing at a higher rate than Derek Carr was when he came to the league. I have an extremely relevant addition to this point, which is uh, something called uh, points per pass attempt, which is a metric that measures the uh, fantasy points that a quarterback puts up for every pass attempt, and it only includes passing fantasy points. So Lay it on me. So Derek Carr, who throws the ball all the time and is in a pass-happy era, of the top 300 quarterbacks that I looked at for combined career fantasy points, uh-huh. Derek Carr puts up .402 fantasy points per pass attempt. So okay. to put that into context of who that is uh, similar to, We've got other people at 402, include Neil Lomax. Oh, Neil Lomax. Yeah, I was going to say, he, uh, he came through on the, uh, the old Elway burn earlier. Yeah, the Elway-o-meter. Uh, Ken Anderson, Tyrod Taylor. Ooh, Tyrod Taylor, spicy. Billy Volick, the uh, <laughs> backup Titans quarterback for about 10 years there in the 2000s. Yeah, and I think, wasn't he a charger too there for a hot minute? Um, most likely. That sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to confirm that. You, 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 uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so, you know, so Derek Carr is, uh, he puts up 0.4 points per pass attempt, which is not anything. Uh, that's 52 out of 300, which you would expect all the people in the era, the passing happy era to all sure. be the top of that list. Uh, but he's got guys that played in the eighties and seventies and, you know, right around him. And then I did look at the top of that list. Cause I was like, all right, well, if Derek Carr is around 50, what quarterback puts up the most fantasy points per pass attempt in NFL history and much to my delight and the delight of all of our loyal listeners, Patrick LaVon Mahomes II leads the NFL all-time in fantasy points per pass attempt with 0.611 points per pass attempt, which is a good 0.80 points higher than second-place Aaron Rodgers. So, uh, you know, and when you look at the top of this list, Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, Deshaun Watson, Russell Wilson, 
Steve Young, Peyton Manning, Drew Brees, Tom Brady. I mean, it is the who's who of good quarterbacks. That's because good quarterbacks put up a lot of points when they throw the football. Derek Carr does not. Now, one subject of our burns that has escaped us, or at least up until this point, gone without so much as a singeing, old Nostradamus himself, David Carr. So, Oof, uh, David Carr, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, you remember David Carr, of course, famously picked number one overall by the expansion Houston Texans in 2002, proceeded to get sacked roughly 9,000 times in his first 12 years in the league or so. And uh, sacks are quarterback stat. And boy, was he not good at them at all. Uh, David Carr ranks 44th from the bottom of the 300 quarterbacks that uh, were listed Ooh, in this. Yikes. So he only puts up 0.291 fantasy points per pass attempt, which is 259th out of 300. So that is extremely not good. No, and extremely not good is a great way to describe the Carr brothers. They uh, they are not good at football. They are not good at predicting football. They are not good at uh, taking football losses, as we've seen from Derek Carr, the crybaby himself. Um, they are they are not good at taking uh, Twitter insults. No, they are not. They are not. And I can confirm being blocked by both of the famous former NFL quarterback Carr brothers, as well as their lesser known high school quarterbacks coach brother, Darren Carr. Uh, I have the trifecta and I actually was just told today that their father is also on Twitter. So I'm going to have to try and uh, pin him down. We'll send him a link to the podcast and see if uh, we can't so get is, blocked. Is Darren Carr like Cooper Manning? Uh, he is. Yes. I think he, he was raised like the other Carr brothers to be a quarterback. I think there's an injury history maybe in there somewhere. I think I saw him bantering with uh, somebody hilarious. It was a player. Uh, who was he feuding with? Gosh, I'm not going to remember it on arrows. Tweet at me and let me know who it was. He was uh, going back and forth with uh, somebody that beat the Raiders this year, which doesn't narrow it down, yeah. if you know what I mean. Um, got nine teams to choose from. And he was just getting roasted. I think it actually might have been, now that I think about it, I think it might have been Jamal Adams of the Jets. Um, I think he was the one roasting him. And I think he kind of replied to him and said, well, you know, like I didn't get a play because I had an injury or whatever. But anyway, he he coaches high school football. Um, I just want to walk you through the way that I got blocked by each of these guys because uh, it's pretty good story. Uh, Derek Carr, I, I don't actually know exactly when. Um, I was in a Twitter thread with Raiders fans back last June or July where they had like tagged Derek Carr. So he was getting a mention. He was getting a little notification every time I tweeted. And I tweeted a lot of the same stuff that I just put on the podcast. And then I just happened to click on the name one day and realized that I was bought. So he definitely saw uh, one of the hundreds of tweets that I put in that thread talking about how bad he was, and he decided to block me. David Carr is a good one. So David Carr, I'll take you back to July 29th, 2019. David Carr tweeted out the following. Notes from Raiders training camp. One, Derek Carr is this year's NFL MVP. Gross. Carry on. And I responded to this with a gif, just a gif, no words. Uh, I responded with the gif of Gordon Ramsay holding a woman's head between two pieces of bread, asking her, what are you? To which she is forced to reply, an idiot sandwich. <laughs> so I replied with the idiot sandwich gif and <laughs> was promptly blocked by David Carr. And 
just for the record, history has proven me to be correct because Derek Carr was not, in fact, the NFL MVP in 2019. For Darren Carr, he retweeted a tweet from Raiders Beat, which showed Derek standing on the sideline. And it's just a picture of Derek Carr standing on the sideline. He's got his eyeliner on. He's just, you know, his guy liner. He's, he's looking, you know, he's looking pretty chill. And the tweet said, Derek Carr is standing on a sideline, an experiment to see if at pro football talk can find something in anything to criticize him. Something in anything. I just realized how grammatically poorly that tweet was worded. That was not a uh, uh, misspeak on your part? No, it was not. That that actually was a direct quote. I copied and pasted that into my notes. Woof. Uh, he says, challenge extended. So Darren Carr retweeted that, you know, like, hey, let's see what people can find to criticize about Derek Carr. He's just standing on the sideline. You know, he loves Trump or he's too religious. He loves Jesus. He doesn't cuss, whatever it is. And I just responded with, how about his quarterbacking skill? Boom, blocked, nailed it. Um, By the way, speaking of Derek Carr off the field, did you see that he endorsed a candidate for mayor of Fresno that uh, was charged like in the 80s with having sex with a minor? I did because I follow you on Twitter. Oh, perfect. Well, if you don't follow me on Twitter, I don't know how you found the podcast, but you should follow me at Real Bird Lawyer. I got some followers, man. Some of them don't follow you. Two of them, I'm sure. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, that's fair. Well, you shout out your Twitter guy, Ben. Get them to follow you. Oh, they know. Taylor Underwit. You guys love me. Taylor underscore wit. I'm at Real Bird Lawyer. I'm Austin. He's Taylor. This is episode three of It's Always Sunny in Chiefs Kingdom.